0: The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn, if you will, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, reading from verse 23 through to verse 32. You'll find that on page 826 of your Pew Bible. I should say before we we enter the text that verse 23 is a challenge to Christ's authority, and then the answer and the implications to that challenge are really played out over three parables. The first one we'll consider today uh, in verse 28, then there's a parable in verse 33, and another parable at the start of chapter 22. So this is really part of a two-part passage. But let's give our attention then to God's word. Uh, Matthew 21 and verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them. I will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from men? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we are afraid of the crowd, for they, will hold, they all hold John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered him, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said, the second. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe in him amen thanks be to god for his word let's pray almighty god we do bow before you now pleading your divine assistance that work that we cannot do for ourselves have mercy upon us lord god In our worship of you now, as you speak to us, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. Work richly in us uh, that we might believe in you, receive you, trust you, and obey you as we are called. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I don't think you need to be a New Testament scholar to work out that the environment of conflict and of judgment is escalating in Matthew's gospel. As our Lord nears the end of his ministry, uh, there is a tone, a very clear tone of rejection, confrontation, and judgment. Our Lord has judged the Jews in the temple. He's judged the unbelieving Jews in the cursing of the fig tree, and now he continues to reveal his judgment upon them through this challenge to his authority and the subsequent three parables of which we read the first this morning. And in answer to their question of authority, he raises a question of authority with them. He highlights the ministry of John the Baptist and the Jews varied reception of him. Some rejected, others received. And in highlighting John's ministry and their reception and rejection of him, he further judges those who both rejected John and in rejecting John ended up also rejecting the Messiah. He rejects those who outwardly appear to conform to the will of their father, but inwardly reject it. The lesson is simply this, true faith in God and his Messiah grants entry to the kingdom and leads to obedience. True faith in God and his Messiah grants entry to the kingdom and leads to trust and obedience. And we see that manifest firstly through the teaching in verse 23, where the Jews challenge Jesus' authority. They challenge his authority. And finally, we'll see, if you like, a test case, verse uh, 28, a test case in the first parable, the parable of the two sons. So true faith in God and his Messiah, Grants entry to the kingdom and leads to obedience in the kingdom. Firstly, we see Jesus' authority being challenged. Remember the context of what we've seen in recent weeks. Jesus left the temple. He's going to go back into the temple and teach and preach the gospel once again. A reminder of what we saw last week we saw our Lord beginning really a ministry of condemnation and of judgment. The cleansing of the temple there in verse 12 was the first episode of that closing ministry towards the unbelieving Jews. And that's really the prelude to our Lord's final departure from the temple in chapter 24, where the glory of the Lord is departing from the temple And bringing judgment upon the people. But it's not all doom and gloom. Last week we saw, did we not, the salvation and the healing of those who were attracted towards the Christ. Those who had received in the blind and lame came to him and he healed them. These are the events of the last days of our Lord's ministry. We are days away from his arrest, his crucifixion, his death. And his burial. And here we find him in chapter 23, re entering the temple, sorry, verse 23, re entering the temple, and we read there, he's teaching. What's he teaching? Well, Luke records for us that he was preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel. And it's this preaching of the gospel uh, to which the Jews once again react. But it shows at least for some there's still that opportunity to repent and believe. Even in the last moments of his ministry where condemnation and judgment predominates his work, he is still holding out the light of the gospel to many. And it's during this teaching and the preaching of the gospel that he receives this challenge to his authority. Note there, verse 23 again, it is the chief priests and the elders of the people come up to him and say, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Note well, it's the chief priests. The rulers over the worship of God's people and the elders, those who are set apart to judge God's people, who come to Jesus over this question of his authority. That is to say, those in authority put there by God in the sacred and, if you will, in the secular realms of God's people now come with a complaint about authority, about Messiah's authority. Jesus himself who had been set apart and appointed by God for this task finds the greatest stumbling block in his ministry for those who are also set apart to authority in Jewish life. There's a tragic irony to this reality. The people that God had appointed, at least formally so, the people that God had appointed who were set apart guide the people in the way of righteousness were now the ones questioning the messiah and if they can't resist his works and his teaching because they were manifestly divine manifestly righteous they will find fault in him in another way by what authority do you teach? By what authority do you do these things? We need to understand the nature of the question, friends. It's designed to catch Jesus out. It's a trick. If he says, well, I've received no formal training in the school of the rabbis, then they'll say, well, you're unqualified to teach. If he says to them, I'm the son of God and have authority to teach, then they will accuse him of blasphemy, place him under arrest, and curtail his earthly ministry before the time Christ was ready to end his earthly ministry. Moreover, we need to understand this question of authority in the life of Christ. The question denies what they saw with their own eyes The question denies what they heard with their own ears. From the earliest parts of Christ's ministry, the Sermon on the Mount, we saw that Christ taught and healed in a way that no one else in Israel ever had done. Verse 28 of chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. And not as the scribes. In other words, in Christ's teaching, in his miracles, in his great signs and wonders, his authority was simply evident. His authority was indisputable. And yet the Jews disputed it. Why? They simply rejected it. And this is true of all people, ultimately, who deny God and deny Christ. Scripture tells us, Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, that everyone can see what can be known of God in creation and providence. Everyone can see it. It's there to be seen. And yet the wicked heart suppresses that truth in unrighteousness. What can visibly and obviously be seen of God is suppressed by the natural man. They don't want to know it. They hide from it. They have a darkened interest in suppressing what they see with their eyes and hear with their ears. What they know and what can be known. And that's the point here with the Jewish authorities. In questioning Christ's authority, what could be seen about Christ? That he was the Messiah, the son of David, the son of God, was obvious for all to see. Obvious for all to hear as they heard him preaching the gospel in the temple. His authority was seen in his person. His authority was seen in his ministry. But they loved darkness rather than light. And they rejected him on that basis. Loving their own position, they rejected christ's position loving the glory that came from men they rejected the glory that came from god friends we ought to see in this question by what authority are you doing these things we ought to see testimony to the darkness of the heart of men, the man without christ The unbeliever will pretend to say, well, seeing is believing. Just give me enough proof. We know that's a deluded lie. The Gospels are full of such examples of seeing which did not lead to believing. Why? Because the darkness of the heart of man without God and without Christ will suppress what it sees, will deny what it hears. Their hearts were darkened, and the Spirit had not worked that divine work of regeneration which leads to faith and repentance. And yet it's not just the Spirit's work that is on show at the moment or the lack thereof. It's not just that there's a lack of divine work in their hearts. These Jews thought they had no need of such a Messiah as Jesus Christ. In fact, they despise this kind of Messiah. Isn't it interesting, as we work our way through the Gospels, the Book of Acts, and as we see in our daily lives, the reception of Christ as Lord and Savior always correlates to a need within the person who receives That is to say, there is a a relationship between those who receive Christ as Lord and Savior and a known real need in their own lives. The Jews, you see, thought they had no need of such a Messiah. They thought they had no need of salvation. And so their personal will to suppress the truth is in this case matched by the divine will not to reveal the truth to them. It's not just the sovereignty of God, friends, that we see in their condemnation. It's their own will, their own desire to remain in darkness, to deny the Christ. And so Jesus replies to them with a question. Their question about authority is also met with his question about authority. Verse 24, I will also ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And his question pertains to the ministry of John the Baptist. Strange. It's a strange response, but there's purpose to it we need to understand why our Lord is raising the ministry of John the Baptist. Quite simply, John the Baptist is the forerunner of the Christ. He came to, as the prophet said, prepare the way for the Lord. His uh, ministry is a baptism of repentance that they might be readied to receive Christ himself. In other words, to put the Jews on the spot Over John the Baptist's ministry was actually to put them on the spot over Jesus' own ministry. He says, The baptism of John, verse 25, from where did it come? The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? It's not just a trick question. It's not some intellectual chicanery. It is actually a question of the deepest spiritual significance. The Jews know if they say, well, John's baptism came from heaven, Jesus would say, well, why didn't you receive it then? Because they rejected it. If they say it came from man, then they live in fear of the crowds who held John rightly to be a prophet of God. In other words, the Jews are trapped. On the one hand, they're trapped by the fear of man, the crowds around them. On the other hand, they feel trapped by condemning themselves if they say John's ministry is from heaven. So they declare ignorance. They pretend, they feign ignorance ignorance they said we don't know where it comes from which allows our lord also to keep silent about by what authority he did his works and by what authority he did his teaching now we might we might think to ourselves why in the world would the lord jesus just not fully reveal himself here Why is he engaging in this? Well, I'll ask you a question, and if you can answer it, then I'll tell you. What in the world is going on here? Why not just meet them in their ignorance, have mercy upon them, and show them who he is? Well, the answer is, friends, he's been doing that for three years. He's been showing mercy to them. He's been revealing who he is by his teaching and by his miracles for a three-year ministry amongst them. His life before that declared who he was. His preaching and teaching declared who he was. His great signs and wonders declared who he was. And friends, if they were not going to believe in that three-year time, they were not going to believe now. In fact, we can say more than that. We can say that Christ hiding from them the truth is an aspect of divine judgment. That the king has come into his kingdom in the triumphal entry, he's come into the royal city, and he's separating there and then the sheep from the goats, those who believe and those who do not. And it matters not what their status in Jewish society was. He's come to exercise his rights, not just as the son of David, but great David's greatest son, the true king, the Messiah. You see, friends, when God no longer speaks to his people, it's a sign of profound judgment. When God goes silent upon his people, that's a time of great condemnation. When God no longer calls his people to repentance and faith and obedience and good works, that is a sign that God for a time is done with his people. As I quoted the prophecy of Hosea last week, not my people. Those who were my people are now not my people. It is in fact a terrible, terrible sign of judgment. Jesus says, I will not tell you who I am. I will not tell you by what authority I do these things. Friends, I want to say this to you by way of application Do not neglect opportunities when God speaks to you. Do not neglect opportunities when God speaks to you. Perhaps some of you are wandering from the Lord right now. You're in church this morning, wonderful, good news. But your life is straying from the Lord. Perhaps you're in some... Form of disobedience or sin or another habitually. You're wandering from the Lord, yet you're here today, friend. And God is speaking to you right now. The Bible doesn't belong to this church, doesn't belong to this pulpit or this preacher. It's God's word unto you now, dear friend. That means it's not too late for you to repent and to turn from your sin and find forgiveness and mercy in Jesus Christ. Look under him now. Hear him calling you. Hear the warning of condemnation. Those who belonged outwardly to the people of God are cast out. It's not too late to repent. It's not too late to turn. It's not too late to go to Christ for repentance and faith and forgiveness. Because friends, life in Christ is worth living. And life in Christ is worth having. Consider it's a life of forgiveness, of freedom of conscience from sin. It's a life of love and fellowship which will produce in you good fruits, fruits of obedience. It's a call to all of us. Why would we ever separate ourselves from those moments when God is speaking? I would suggest to you, friends, that is to invite hardship, even judgment, chastening into your own life. Jesus did not speak of who he was to the Jews in order to reveal judgment upon them. And he's done so through the ministry of, And now in this first parable, verse 28, he continues to utilize the ministry of John. In fact, this parable, as we've said, is the first of three. And these parables speak to us of of the reality of who is in the kingdom, and on what basis are they in the kingdom, and how do they respond, how do they serve, how do they live when in the kingdom... And the simple lesson is this, faith grants entry into the kingdom of grace and obedience marks those who are in the kingdom of grace. Faith grants entry and obedience marks out those who are genuinely in the kingdom. And the test case, first of all, is the parable of the two sons. One writer says, we move into our second point, the parable of the two sons, one writer mentions that this parable picks up on an unexpected role reversal. Certainly unexpected for the Jews. Those who thought they were in and the first actually find themselves out and last. And those who are viewed as being out and outcasts and last of society actually find themselves on the inside of the kingdom. The parable is rather simple, A father has two sons and a vineyard. He says to the first son, go into the vineyard today and work. The son says, verse 29, I will not go. But then later repents and goes and does the will of his father. He says to the second son, go into the field and work. And the son says, I will go, sir. He outwardly appears to obey, but then he changes his mind and disobeys his father. The teaching moment for the Jews with our Lord is there in verse 31. Which of the two did the will of his father? Now, if you read the Gospels enough, you'll know that phrase, the will of his father, is theologically loaded. Christ said time and time again, I have come to do the will of him who sent me. I've come to do the will of my father. It's a lesson about them and, in a sense, a lesson about him. Who does the will of the father? The Jews say, rightly, the first son. Though he initially disobeyed the call to go and labor and to serve, he realized, I'm a man under authority. I must do as I'm told. I must trust my father. I must obey him. And he went and did it. Yes, he was the one who did the will of his father. Jesus' application to them is quite simple. It's the end of verse 31 into verse 32. He says, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. He's talking to the chief priests, the elders of the people, and he says, The tax collectors and Prostitutes, go into the kingdom of God before you. He's not saying you'll go in after him. He's saying you won't go in at all. That which you had has been taken from you and given to others. We'll see that in the next two parables. He's not saying you'll go in in a, in a lesser way. He's you're not even in the kingdom. And look who's taken your place. The despised tax collectors, the outcast of society, the prostitute. Why? Well, our Lord tells them. He tells them really in three points. He says to them, tax collectors and prostitutes will enter the kingdom rather than you. He says this, John preached the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. And the tax collectors and prostitutes did. They're granted entry. And thirdly, he says to them, even when you saw the the miraculous works of John in his teaching, the repentance of, of thousands of people, even when you saw it, Jesus says, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. The simple message to them was this. To reject John's ministry was to reject Christ himself. Because John came to prepare the way for the Lord. To reject John's ministry was to reject the Messiah himself. I don't suppose by now that this message was surprising to the Jews. I suppose they had heard it from our Lord perhaps many times over. But shocking nonetheless. Shocking nonetheless. The chief priests replaced by tax collectors. The elders replaced by prostitutes. You can imagine their fury, can't you? Their outrage at what our Lord is saying. Tax collectors and prostitutes in the kingdom of heaven over us. We can just imagine their fury and anger. Verse forty-five trespassing into Pastor Rockin's preaching next week. They know he's talking about them. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived he was speaking about them. Consider these Jews. For centuries they've congratulated themselves that they were the special chosen people of God, and there were none quite like them. They were more holy than others, more chosen than others. They were God's sons. They were the obedient son working in the vineyard of their father. And now they're told that the outcasts, the lasts of society, will be given entry to the kingdom at their expense. We ask ourselves, how could this be? It's because the kingdom of which Jesus is speaking is wholly different to the kingdoms of this world and wholly different to the kingdom that these Jews thought they were part of. Isn't that interesting? Our Lord has said, my kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. said that in the previous chapter. And actually what we're seeing that within the covenant people there was a conception of the kingdom of heaven which was thoroughly worldly. Thoroughly worldly. The Jews conception of the kingdom. The Jews conception of the Messiah. Thoroughly worldly. To the point that they belonged in that kingdom and not in the kingdom of heaven. We ask ourselves how could it End like this? And the answer is really terribly simple. Because the kingdom of God does not belong to any by birth, nor by family, nor by some kind of priority of one kind or another, nor by service, nor by works, nor position, nor conformity to a set of rules or a set of doctrines or the practice of men. It's simply not a kingdom of men. And it's not run by men's principles. It's the kingdom of the God-man, Jesus Christ, run by his principles. Thus, friends, we dare not attempt to enter this kingdom or conduct ourselves within this kingdom by virtue of our own merits or our own supposed position or lineage or any such thing. When it comes to the kingdom of heaven, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, we dare not be found championing our right to birth or service or ministry or position or credentials. No, to enter the kingdom, we empty ourselves and receive the king by faith. And by faith alone. To serve in the kingdom, we empty ourselves. We come to serve and not be served, as was the way of our Lord. To enter the kingdom requires faith. Verse 32 For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. To believe John was later to believe Christ. To receive John's message was ultimately to receive Christ, he's saying. And once in the kingdom, kingdom people produce fruit. Verse 43. Again, to transgress on Pastor Ockham's sermon next week. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Not the fruits of the world, the fruits of the kingdom. What pervades some supposed Christian ministries and Christian churches is not the fruit of the kingdom of God. It's the fruit of the kingdoms of the world. If you want evidence of that, work your way through the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I'm speaking in general terms, of course. That'll show you a worldly environment. What did our Lord do? He closes doors, He removes His presence, He pronounces judgment. The fruit of the kingdom is the fruit of the Spirit. It's just that it's the fruit of the kingdom not the fruit of this world. We're not to look like this world. We're not to sound like this world. We're not to think like this world. We're not to worship like this world does because we belong to the kingdom of heaven. It's a kingdom which endures. It's filled with righteousness and grace and mercy. Friends, let's be clear. Here we see some in the process of being removed from the kingdom. They were never truly in it because they were not in it by faith, but now formally they are also being removed from it. We've been taught in Scripture that others were brought in in their place. Let's be clear what this means for us as we close today. First, let us take care. Let us, you and me, let us take care that this does not become true of us also that being in the kingdom, we are removed from it because of a lack of sincere and true faith. We ought to constantly be examine ourselves to see if we are living by faith and living in the way of righteousness. And as we do that, friends, we don't so focus upon our, our own failings and our own sin that we say, by my sin I've been excluded. no. By your lack of faith, you're excluded. But by your faith, you are included. Not because your works are so great, though that will follow in time. We are included because of the mercy of God in Christ and the Holy Spirit working faith in us. That is the ground by which we have been received entrance into this kingdom. Not by what we do. Are we of faith? Are we of faith? And if we conclude we are, as many, many, many of us should, let us give thanks for that reality. What a remarkable thing for us to be here today. Scripture will tell us branches of the vine were broken off that we might be grafted in. Oh, what an act of mercy and grace that you, friend, are here today, delivered from your sins. Hearing the voice of God speak unto you individually. What a great act of mercy. A great act of grace. Oh friends, let's give thanks for this reality. That while some have been cast off, you have been shown the grace and mercy of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. That though we were outside of the kingdom, we have been brought into the kingdom. That we are children of the living God. What wonder is this, friends? Are you filled with wonder at this reality? That you not by right nor by might nor by merit nor by righteousness that you have been brought into the kingdom of heaven? Oh, what wonder is this? Guilty, vile, and helpless sinners raised to the heights of heaven this very day. This is good news. Blessed news. And our response our response to the goodness and the generosity of our great god surely it's this worship and obedience worship and obedience fruits of the kingdom of god may god grant each one of us here this day hearts that are so filled with love for our god that that love and that faith directs our every word our every thought and our every deed. Amen. Let's pray. Great God, we plead with you firstly to enable us to examine our hearts, to see whether we be of faith. To any here living in rebellion, Lord God, living against your revealed will, have mercy Grant repentance, grant faith that, Lord God, your name might be praised through the salvation of sinners. And for those, Lord, of us whom you have delivered and granted faith, oh, Lord, how we bless your name, how we praise you. You are very good and kind. Fill our hearts, Lord, to overflowing with that knowledge that it might direct our every path. We praise and bless you. In the name of Christ, our Lord and our Saviour, amen.